Let me just remind you of uh, what Jean read to us. Paul summarized it uh, from verse 11 of chapter 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. And his uh, conclusion, sadly, is that therefore everything is meaningless again. Let's pray. We want to ask, Lord, that you will help us again, as you've helped us so many times to our, our great enrichment, that you would help us again to understand your word. Thank you that you've given us this, uh, this rich and varied book. We pray this morning that together, as your people, we would learn something more of you and of your world and therefore be able to live lives which are more in tune with you and with your world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to try a little test here. Hands up. Hands up who's not wearing a watch this morning. Hands up who never wears a watch. Yeah, there's a few. My father doesn't either. In fact, he actually, my father, never, had never owned a watch in his life until he actually inherited his father's watch just a few years ago when, uh, when his father died. And still he never wears it. The watch lives in a drawer. Because my father's a farmer. He tells the time, actually, quite accurately enough by looking at the, at the sun and by his instinct. And anyway, his life's not dominated by, by the clock. It's dominated by the weather, by the season, by the length of the day, by the um, erratic behaviour of animals. And he's a pretty rare creature today. I think um, uh, we had a remarkably high proportion of people without watches. So, um, numbering three. I think in most gatherings of... Uh, a hundred or so people, you'd find virtually no adults. Because we live in an age of, of, of uh, appointments and deadlines. We live in a time when life is, is fast and furious. And uh, it hasn't been like that for very long. Um, uh, just, uh, for instance, before the railway lines got to Bristol in the 19th century, the clocks in Bristol were 20 minutes behind London didn't matter until there was a train timetable. Suddenly they realised they had to um, uh, rectify that. They wouldn't bother these days, would they? It doesn't make much difference. <laughs> At the end of the 19th century, um, uh, Rudyard Kipling uh, wrote uh, in his poem, if, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, and that was actually quite a novel concept. The idea of uh, minutes and seconds being how you measured the useful things that you did in your life was really very, very young. An hour was quite accurate enough just a few years ago. Let me ask another question um, to, to uh, uh, test that. How many people here, we haven't probably got that many people this morning who don't speak English as their first language. How many people have another language as their first language. 
Yeah, oh, not really a representative sample, less than usual. How many of those, when they say what's the time, they actually, you, you actually in your language literally say what's the hour or something more general like that? Yeah, certainly most European languages do, uh, would say what is the hour? Because uh, basically, uh, until relatively recently, that was good enough. Actually, a friend of mine um, who lived in Kenya for a while told me that the Kenyans um, have an even more relaxed attitude. He was at a railway station waiting for a train. This might sound familiar as well. And um, uh, he asked when the next train was due, and the person on the station said, oh, today. <laughs> but that increase in, in, in pace that uh, we've seen in the world, that, that, that Kipling described as, as the unforgiving minute. That uh, sense of uh, relentless domination by the clock has become the dominant theme, really, of, of, of our day. A number of years ago, John Cleese played, played a, a fanatically punctual headmaster in Clockwise. Do you remember that? More recently, Tom Hanks in the film uh, Castaway is obsessed with the speed at which his company can deliver uh, uh, parcels. Films portray people as, as trapped in that, in that common sense that so many of us have that we are, we are dominated by the race of time, like uh, someone skiing down a mountainside before they've learned actually to stop. We sense we're going faster and faster and faster, and there is no way short of calamity that we can stop. It's like um, getting on a train. It's very easy to get on it. But when it's going at 70 miles an hour, if they do, third train joke, still, when it's going at 70 miles an hour, it's very hard to get off, isn't it? See, the teacher who wrote uh, this book, Ecclesiastes, decides in chapter 3, it's time to get off the train. He's been searching for a meaningful, satisfying life. You know that if you've been here for the last few weeks. In chapter 2, we saw that he sought it um, in all sorts of pleasures, from laughter to sex to uh, changing rooms. All of those things good in themselves, but not in the end, he found, satisfying. In the second half of the chapter, we saw, saw that he then sought satisfaction in, in pursuing wisdom and a deep understanding of this world. And he discovered, too, that wisdom was good, but it didn't really give him any lasting gain. He actually realized that death robbed him of anything he may achieve. So his very discovery of wisdom brought misery. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 20, My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. His conclusion was... Uh, uh, was a rather weak one. Perhaps he shouldn't think about anything too much and just enjoy his life. Maybe there was nothing better for him. Well, at the beginning of chapter 3, he starts to explore that tentative conclusion that he, he has come to. Maybe all this, this chasing after things is the wrong way to look at life. 
Perhaps his problem, actually, has been that he's just been too obsessed with, with, with making progress, with marching forward, with achieving something, fulfilling that unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Maybe that was his problem. Maybe he ha- just has to accept that life is not about progress at all. It's actually about living with the world's natural rhythms. It's going to say, um, first of all, in verses 1 to uh, 10, that he sees a natural rhythm in the world. I see a natural rhythm in this world, he says. It's a rhythm, he says, which encompasses absolutely everything. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, he says in verse 1. And it's the rhythm of of life itself, verse 2. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build. Everything from human life to animal life to uh, the, the, the life, in a sense, of, of, of the things that we build has a rhythm about it. And that rhythm as well, he says, includes our emotions. Verse 4, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Our relationships as well have a rhythm about them. A time to embrace, a time to refrain, a time to love, a time to hate. Our constructive and destructive behaviour has a rhythm about it. A time to to scatter stones, he says in verse 5, and a time to gather, gather them. Scattering stones, you see, was one of the ancient ways that you ruined an enemy's pasture. So he couldn't plough it up. Gathering stones, of course, made the field cultivable. And that rhythm as well includes our attitude towards our possessions. A time to search. Verse 6, a time to give up. A time to keep. A time to throw away. Even our judgment about politics has a certain rhythm and balance about it. A time for war, verse 8. A time for peace. To a large extent, he says, that that rhythm is given to us. It's it's imposed from outside. Nobody chooses when they'll be born or when they'll die. We can't choose entirely when we will mourn and when we will be happy. But there is also an element of having some good judgment about these rhythms of life so that we decide when to search for something and when it's time to give up, when to go to war and when to sue for peace. Recognising that is vital for a happy life. Life has its, has its phases, has its seasons. You know, many people are single here. For most of us, that won't last forever. And there are things that you can do when you're single which you just can't do when you're married. Let me tell you, once or twice... The rest of the whole of my family go, go away for a few days to, to uh, stay with grandparents, and I'm left on my own. When that happens, and that's happened in the past, I just couldn't believe how much time I'd got. You just don't realise 
the, 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 the freedoms that we have of time and making our own decisions as single people until we lose it. Or take uh, the struggle that so many, so many parents, especially fathers, have when children come along. Because our, our children force us to change our priorities. Our, uh, the, our work has to take a lower position in our life. Our hobbies get squeezed out. The time we spend with our spouse is, is rarer. But there'll be another season for those things. There'll be a time when we can enjoy those. There's an enormous number of things to enjoy now about having children. Many people struggle at retirement too. They feel like they've been thrown on the scrap heap. There are losses at at that stage of life. But there are gains as well. As actually many, many elderly people say, should we really regret the flowers of summer when we can enjoy the fruits of autumn? Or there are dark seasons of life, times when we mourn and are sad. And sometimes it can seem like we will never laugh again. But we will. This morning will ease and there will be happiness again for the vast majority of us. Maybe we need to just accept that this is a time when we must mourn. See what he says? There is a natural rhythm to this world. It's not, 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 a, not, not actually a, a, a desperate, fast-flowing helter-skelter. If we only understand it, life is a rhythm. Life has its seasons. If we're to be wise, we need to understand that. Then we will find, perhaps, that we can cope with life better. But from um, what is basically... Uh, Uh, a positive meditation. As so often happens in this book, the teacher brings us down to earth with a very heavy bump. Verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? In other words, he's saying, we actually cannot eradicate that, that, that hardwired need that we have to make progress, to achieve something, to, to gain something, to, 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 to do something productive with each unforgiving minute. Just going with the flow actually frustrates that real sense of need that we have in us. He says, uh, it's a burden even, verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on man. Yes, there is a rhythm to life. But actually, just exploring that rhythm frustrates something very deep built into our personality. And that's what he begins to explore from verses uh, 11 onwards, 11 to 15 from this basic observation about the rhythmic nature of life, he starts to say, to, to say that this, this rhythm is both beautiful and frustrating. 
It's beautiful and frustrating. First of all, he says, it is beautiful, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. There, there is so much beauty about this rhythm of life. You know, I, I love the seasons, for instance. The cold frosts of January, the, the yellow flowers of spring, the, the strength and colour and smell of summer, the harvest and death of autumn the nakedness of December. It is a beautiful cycle that God has built into this world. There's also actually a great beauty about the cycle of human life. The wonderful miracle of watching a child grow, the, the energy and dynamism of young adults, the growing solidity and peace of middle years, the, the slower pace and longer perspective of old age. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But doing no more than living through those seasons actually can bring a dreadful emptiness into our lives. We need to feel life is going somewhere. We need to see a bigger picture. We need some sense that God has an overall plan for his universe. Verse 11, he has set eternity in the hearts of men Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And this is his frustration. See, the cycle of life is not enough for us. We need this, this big picture of our place in eternity. I think that's partly why people are so fascinated by Stephen Hawking, isn't it? Because he talks about knowing the end from the beginning. He talks about eternity. He claims uh, to, to be close to explaining it all. And we're fascinated by that. We have a deep hunger for that. I saw, um, again, that, that, that universal need to, to feel that we have a place in eternity. Just a few months ago, when a friend of mine gave me a tape of uh, a lecture given by a lady called Dana Zohar, who, who actually lectures at um, Oxford Brooks, has written a number of books. In this uh, lecture, she was talking about a new idea called the quantum self. It takes um, various concepts from the world of physics and mixes them up with uh, a degree of mysticism and, and tries to say that, the, that our life energy is absorbed back into the universe at death. So, as she puts it, the history of the universe is my history. Actually, when you examine it, it's completely incoherent rubbish. Absolutely makes no sense at all. And more than that, it gives no real hope that I will survive death that I can make any meaningful contribution to the history of the universe. What amazed me, actually, in listening to this tape was to, to see how excited people were by it. I realised afresh, he has set eternity in the hearts of men. So we will latch on to anything that tries to help us to understand eternity but we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, the teacher says, after exploring the, the beauty but the frustration of this world, 
He says in the end, accept your ignorance. Go with the flow. Enjoy life. I know there is nothing better for men than to be happy, to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Indeed, he says this, this sense that our world cannot actually ultimately be understood, still less controlled by us, should actually lead us to have a sense of awe before God. Because he alone is in control of this eternal plan. So we should revere him, verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it. God shows us this, uh, the fact that he has an unchangeable eternal plan that we barely know and cannot control. God does it so that men will revere him. He controls the cycle of life. We cannot change them. Whatever has, verse 15, has already been. Whatever will be has been before. And he controls the big picture as well. Verse 15 again, God will call the past to account. Now it may be, actually, as he has explored this, that the teacher has gained, begun to gain, anyway, a deeper sense of satisfaction in this chapter than he did when he, remember, he was desperately chasing pleasure and then desperately chasing wisdom. He does seem more confident that this world is a beautiful place, that God is to be revered. He does seem to have a deeper understanding. I wonder whether actually our society as well is coming to a deeper understanding of these things. As it has become... Uh, in some circles at least, disillusioned with this endless quest for more things to give us pleasure, disillusioned as well with the false ideas of wisdom that leave us depressed. There is a growing mood that what we need to do actually is just be in tune with the way that the world is. I wonder whether perhaps it is significant that the dome which was built to celebrate mankind's achievements, was a flop, while the Eden Project in Cornwall, which was built to celebrate the natural world, has been hailed as a great success. Perhaps we are learning to live with the natural seasons of life. And uh, perhaps as well, this, this rise in spirituality that everybody's talking about in our country is a rise in that sense that we must revere God. These things that we search after are ultimately mysterious and in his hands. He needs to be feared, revered, stood in awe of. But lest we think that... Um, this little symphony has, uh, is drawing, drawing to its harmonious conclusion. The, the teacher, um, being who he is, will not let us think that. 
he introduced a massive note of discord. Yes, there is a rhythm to this world. Yes, it is beautiful and frustrating, and to a certain extent, though, can be lived at peace with. But uh, this terrible discord always intrudes. It is deeply damaged by injustice. That's what he um, begins to explore for in verse 16 all the way to verse 22. I saw something else under the sun, he says, verse 16. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Adolf Hitler cuts off the lives of millions of Jews in the Holocaust. Pol Pot exterminates millions of Cambodians. Hundreds of thousands of Rwandans are hacked to death by their fellow countrymen. Thousands of workers die in New York on September the 11th. What happened to their natural life cycles? What happened to everything being beautiful in its time for them? Well, the teacher's first thought is that there must be some sort of natural justice in this beautiful rhythmic world. After all, didn't verse 1, didn't he say in verse 1, there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven? Verse 17, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. But then he realises that this hard, solid reality of death just cuts across any idea that the world has natural justice built into it. The innocent cannot be compensated. Those dead Jews and Cambodians and Rwandans and, New and, Rwandans and New York office workers, they've run out of time. The guilty cannot be punished. Hitler escaped trial by taking his life. Pol Pot died without being tried. And who knows, maybe Osama bin Laden will die quietly of kidney failure or from a riding accident before any sort of justice gets to him. We have this hunger for justice, but we have no greater chance of seeing it, he says, than wild animals have that live and die by that terrible, random law of the jungle. Verse 18, I also thought as for men, God tests them, so that they may see they are like animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath, Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. See, he has not found peace, this man. Because he can't see beyond death. Verse 20. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So, he says, with a shrug of his shoulders, perhaps there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? It is not a joyful conclusion. 
It is a terrible pessimistic one. Just as the teacher has seen, perhaps with the greatest clarity, how it is we could find peace in this world by living in harmony with its natural rhythms, he has seen also with the, the clearest sharpness that the terrible injustices that happen in this world rob us even of peace in that lifestyle. And there, as always, he ends it. If only he could have read the New Testament. As we've said again and again, if only he had seen what the New Testament makes so clear to us. In the New Testament, there is a great emphasis on God bringing the living and the dead to justice. And how he cries out for that in this uh, chapter. Every person who has ever lived, says, uh, uh, says the New Testament, will rise again and be judged by Jesus. That is the only resolution that there could be to this terrible frustration that the teacher feels. Anyone who has thought long and hard about this world must, must see that as the most extraordinary, wonderful relief. It means that no guilty person escapes justice. What, um, uh, what trials may be held for those men in Guantanamo Bay at the moment will not achieve justice. They may do a little bit of good, but justice is not going to be fully served. In such a complex case, it will always elude us. But God will achieve justice. Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden, George Bush, Tony Blair, you, me, will all face Jesus Christ. And books will be opened and he will make an assessment of our life. And on that day, perfect justice will be achieved. Which brings us to a very big question, doesn't it? Well, how then will I be vindicated? Of course, we may not be the worst, but we're bad enough, aren't we, if we're honest? bad enough to have a real fear of meeting that perfectly holy and righteous and just living God face to face. That's the reason why Jesus Christ came. Why he came to die on the cross. He came so that God could achieve perfect justice in every last if we ask him then Jesus will pay the perfect price for every one of our failures if we do not ask him 
and we will. One way or another, what the teacher longed for, what the human soul longs for, will be finally achieved. The only way that we will survive that into heaven is if we ask that Jesus Christ should have died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, you see, is the judge. He paid the price for our failures, but he as well will judge us. Apostle Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he has set a day, that's God, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The only way out of the conundrum of this author is by asking Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. So what will eternity be like then? Will it still have this, this rhythm of life that the author sees so clearly in, um, uh, in, in this chapter? Will it, or will it just always be the same, absolutely unchanging? That sounds very boring, doesn't it? Like that dreadful um, last line of once in Royal David City that always sticks in my throat as I sing it. When like stars his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. Sounds like an internal dentist waiting room, doesn't it? Well, the, the, heaven will not have a rhythm in quite the way that the world now has a rhythm. There won't be death or mourning or war as there is in the world now. There won't even be day and night as we know them because the light of God will shine on us. But maybe in the pictures of eternity that we see, there is just a hint that the beauty of the rhythm of life that we now see will extend there into the new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation chapter 22, John's vision of heaven includes the tree of life, which he says yields 12 crops, one for each month of the year. Somehow life's rhythm then, stripped of sin and death and, and gloriously more fruitful. How many trees do you know that yield 12 crops? But that rhythm will continue. What we, what we sense now about the way that life works will be reflected in eternity. So what about us? Let me first of all say that if you, if you find yourself right now unable to live with this rhythm of life, if you find yourself at odds with the beautiful way that God has 
made this world. If you find yourself actually being in, being in a rat race, in a tunnel that has hard sides and being driven down it, then let me say, you're not living as God calls us to live, as believers. God says that our life is supposed to be a dance to the music of time. Maybe you need to make some decisions to come to terms with the way the world is. But let me say too that we need to be prepared, every single one of us, to face that ultimate justice that comes after our death. Because if we are not ready, if we have not asked for that forgiveness, so cost, won at such great cost by Jesus Christ on the cross, then there will not be hope of a final, wonderful resolution to the problems of this world. There will only be fear of judgment. A real way to live in this world is with the glorious rhythms of life and the glorious assurance that one day there will be justice and we will be forgiven. Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Perhaps for whatever reason you haven't personally come to terms with the natural rhythms of life. And therefore are not able to live with any degree of ease in this world. Perhaps you need to bring that before the Lord right now. Perhaps you are not confident that you have come to terms with the final judgment by Jesus Christ. Perhaps you need to ask his forgiveness right now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you will both give us an appetite for this world and this life that you have made beautiful in its time.
And Lord, fill us with a longing, confident hope for your new heaven and new earth. When all those things that frustrate and disappoint and irritate us will be taken away. Help us to be ready both to live life now, Lord, and to live for eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.